Ezekiel chapter 4, starting in verse 1, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie also on your left side and lay up the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity. According to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. You, uh, your arms shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have ended the days of your siege. Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel and make bread, for the, uh, bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you shall eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day from the time, from time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen. From time to time you shall drink, and you shall eat it as barley cakes, and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord, God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. I hope you already ate dinner. Uh, moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight, and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure, and with dread, that they may lack bread and water, and be dismayed with one another, and waste away because of their iniquity. Psalm 48.2 says this, Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. In Psalm 87, uh, Psalm 87 verses 1 through 3, it says this, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. The Babylonian Talmud says this, of the ten measures of beauty that came down to the world, Jerusalem took nine. And it also says, whoever has not seen Jerusalem in its splendor has never seen a lovely city. Warren Wearsby, he recounts the thoughts of a man by the name of Samuel Heilman, who wrote, speaking of modern Jerusalem, 
in our recent time, the days in which we live in, he said, it is a place in which people actually live. It is a place that lives in them. Passover is later this month. Matter of fact, uh, it will begin on sundown or 6 o'clock in the evening on April the 14th. That's when Passover begins this year. You know, the date changes slightly every year, but it'll be at sundown on April the 14th if you want to kind of follow it. Uh, and then it will go all the way until sundown, April the 22nd. But when Jewish families around the world gather for Passover, um, doesn't matter where, what part of the world you go, all Jewish families that gather for Passover, uh, they conclude the Passover Seder. You may or may not have heard this before, but uh, when we were in Israel, uh, this was something that we heard not just at Passover, at the end of Passover. We weren't there during Passover season. We were there about two, three months prior. Uh, it is something that's also said by some people um, in, in, other, in other contexts, maybe uh, when they're parting from each other and they're not going to see each other for a while. But it's particularly said at the end of a Passover Seder, all around the world, even among people, even among Jewish families that have never been to Israel and may never even make it to Israel, this is what is said at the end of the Seder, next year in Jerusalem. If you ever uh, go to a Seder with a Jewish family, that is said at the end of the Seder, next year in Jerusalem. No city that I've ever visited, and I've had a chance to go to some you know, world-class cities, but no city that I've ever visited struck me like Jerusalem. I'm sure my wife and you know, Russ would say the same, those of us that went uh, last February. But I've spoken to numerous people that have visited Jerusalem that have felt the exact same way. I know for me, years of studying the Word of God, I should, well not years like eons, but I got saved in 1995, and ever since I got saved and began reading the Bible, uh, Jerusalem pops up on the pages of Scripture a lot. And so for me, the years of studying the Word of God made me feel like I was visiting you when we first entered Jerusalem. I'll never forget the ascent as we were going up into the city, and it was, in, it was uh, late afternoon, uh, which is that golden hour when the sun hits uh, at just the right angle. And, uh, but I felt like I was visiting a place that I had already visited many times in the Scriptures. But it wasn't just what I knew about Jerusalem you know, the fact that Abraham, you know, when you, you've all heard of Mount Moriah, right? Well, Mount Moriah is where Solomon would eventually build the temple. It's Mount Zion. It's right there. When he laid Abraham, when Abraham laid Isaac down, he laid him down on what would become the city of David. He laid him down right there on that slab of rock, which later the temple was built on. And uh, you have, you know, Abraham and Isaac that were there long before King David, but then King David takes the city from the Jebusites and builds the city of David, which would become the city of Jerusalem. And the temple, as, uh, as I mentioned, was built there. And then Jesus would triumphantly enter through the east gate of the city and the east gate of the temple. And uh, he would, of course, not only be crucified in the city, which was a horrible day, but then three days later, he would rise in that same city, which is a wonderful 
day. Although we need both, don't we? We need his death and we need uh, his resurrection. But the Apostle Paul would come back uh, and he would participate in the feast there. So, so much of uh, Jerusalem, uh, what I had read and many of you have read in the scriptures, it just comes to life. But it wasn't just what those things that I knew, but also what I didn't know. Uh, the beauty of Jerusalem was different uh, than I expected. The vegetation, the elevation that it sits at 2,500 feet above sea level. You know, it's high up there uh, in the mountains and the, the, the breeze that comes all the way across the Mediterranean, the way the light reflects off the Jerusalem stone, which is native to the area, the, the, the special kind of limestone that has that color that when the sun hits it, the whole city just shines and it uh, reflects so well. Uh, but there's also a sense and a feeling in Jerusalem that you can't describe. It just defies it. Uh, it, it and I think that for us, those of us who are believers, I think for me, and I can only speak for me, and uh, but I'm sure other people would agree, it's that deep knowledge that Jesus will rule and reign there someday. And when you're there and you know that his throne is going to be set up, not in New York, not in Tokyo, not in Vienna, not in Johannesburg, not in Sydney, Australia, Jerusalem, that city that God loves more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob, that someday Jesus will rule and reign there. But for the household of Israel, even those that are not in Messiah, they, they've not come to Yeshua, they're not born again. The household of Israel, both uh, those in the past and, and many present, there's still a connection to Jerusalem, just being Jewish. There's still a connection to that city. And it was the Babylonian exiles, the very Babylonian exiles that Ezekiel would have been around and Daniel would have known. It was the Babylonian ex exiles that echoed the words of Psalm 137. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 137. You probably have in many cases. You may have forgotten. But Psalm 137, verses 1 and 3, this is what it says. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That was the refrain of the exiles living in Babylon. Once something's taken away from you, you really miss it. And if you really thought it was something before you had it taken away, it's magnified even more when it's taken away. Health is one of those things, right? If you, if you enjoy good health, which most of us do, I don't know anyone that doesn't like good health, if it's taken away from you, you really miss it. You can remember back. This is the NCAA tournament time of the year, and I watch these 19-year-old guys run up and down the court, and it reminds me when I used to be able to run up and down the court for eight hours without a knee hurting or a neck hurting or something like that. And you remember fondly things in the past. But Jerusalem, for the Israelites, especially those that would go off into captivity, to think of Jerusalem, that city that's on a hill, that sits up, it's beautiful, Babylon, where they were at, wasn't on a hill. It was, it was in, a, in a flat plain area. And it wasn't home. 
If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word tonight, A Painful Portrayal. A Painful Portrayal. And we'll look at three things from the text tonight. The tablet, the timeline, and the turnoff. The tablet, the timeline, and the turnoff. You might, rem- you might recall one passage in the text that would, that would turn you off too, if the Lord tells you to cook in a certain manner. But it's a painful portrayal for Ezekiel, and I think it would be for any of us if we were given the task that he's given. Let's look at this tablet in in verse 1. He says, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city. Then The clay tablets were very common in Babylon. They would write uh, records on them. They would keep records, transactions. Uh, you know, renderings of, of art and drawings. Uh, but the Lord has Ezekiel take a clay tablet and he wants him to portray the city of Jerusalem on it. Matthew Henry said this, he said, it was Jerusalem's honor that while she kept her integrity, God had graven her upon the palms of his hands, Isaiah forty nine sixteen. And the names of the tribes were engraven in precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest. But now, that faithful city has become a harlot. A worthless, brittle tile or brick is thought good enough to portray it upon. This the prophet must lay before him, and that, or this that the eye may affect the heart. In other words, that the rendering of the city would affect the hearts of the people that he's speaking to that he would show this image to, that they would come to his house and see it. Um, Certainly, a picture tells a thousand words, doesn't it? Sometimes when you see just a picture of something, just an image, you don't even have to know a lot about the context, and you can pick up quite a bit just seeing a picture like this. Jerusalem, as as we've looked at in prior studies... Jerusalem had three phases of attacks that came from Babylon. Three phases. Remember that the first one was in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel and many others of noble birth were carried away into captivity. Daniel went before Ezekiel did. Many, By the way, many uh, scholars believe that Daniel and Ezekiel knew each other from youth. We've talked about that it's very possible and Some would say probable that they were the exact same age, but very close in age. But Daniel was carried away in the first attack in 605 B.C. And that attack did not destroy Jerusalem. It just humbled Jerusalem a little bit. You know, when when a country comes and carries away some of your people, that's not a good day. But the city was still intact. Some people died, some were carried away. And then in 597 B.C., When King Jehoiakim and many others, Ezekiel among them, this is when Ezekiel was carried away, uh, that was the second phase. And this, as Ezekiel is receiving this command to take the clay tablet and to render the city on it and build the siege mount and show all the image of what will take place, it hasn't taken place yet. Right? You could talk about things that have already happened in the United States. You could go back and say, well, this happened in the 1970s, and this happened in the 80s, but only God knows what's going to happen in the year 2016, or the year 2020, 
or the year 2022. And if God told you some of the things that could end up happening, you might get a little stressed yourself. I might. Now, I don't know what's going to, going to take place. But Ezekiel is not receiving something that could happen. He's receiving something that will happen. Absolutely count on it. It will happen. Turn with me real quick over to Jeremiah chapter 4. Now, the, the prophecies against Jerusalem had already been very clear if, if people were actually listening. If people were actually listening. This is the same in our own country today. This is the same for any person. It's absolutely a fact that every person's going to die someday. Amen? Everyone's going to die. So it's completely necessary that everyone shore up the destination of their soul by going to the foot of the cross. To not do so is to foolishly just say, ah, no big deal. Well, Israel, and particularly here, uh, Jerusalem, if your Bibles are open to Jeremiah chapter 4, the Lord had already told the prophet Jeremiah well before Ezekiel, well before Daniel, what was going to take place and what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Look at uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, starting with verse 5. This is what Jeremiah prophesied years before. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say... Jeremiah 4, starting verse 5. Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the sta uh, standard toward Zion. Take refuge, do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Actually, the Babylon, Babylon army would come this way and then down. They, so they moved over the Mesopotamia area and then down to Jerusalem. Down as far as north-south would go. Up, you've got to go up into the city, up into the 2,500 feet. But look at verse 7. The symbol of Babylon, you've seen the lions there at the front of the city, they're on the gates and everything. Verse 7, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. This is none other than Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon. Well before Ezekiel or Daniel. He has gone forth from his place to make your land what? Desolate. Jerusalem was not desolate at that time. It still was not desolate during the time of Ezekiel. Everyone was holding it together. Jerusalem, they were holding it down. It wasn't desolate yet. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. That was Jeremiah, well before Ezekiel, well before Daniel. The city was already earmarked by the Lord for destruction that was imminent. Two phases that already happened. You know, when God brings judgment, the first two phases should have been enough to get people's attention and say, given what Jeremiah already said, given that our city's been attacked twice and we've been kind of slapped around by Babylon, maybe, just maybe, we should return to the Lord 
with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength before these things come to pass. Most of the exiles, though, the reason why God gives Ezekiel these pictorial images to present is the Lord is essentially saying the people are now spiritually deaf. They don't need another sermon. They don't need another Bible study. They don't need another open up the scrolls and read from Jeremiah again. Give them something that they can see with their eyes. It would almost be like God saying, don't preach to them, Tim. Show them an iPad, a tablet, and put the image on there and and show the city and then show all the things that are coming. Just show them an image because... The word is falling on deaf ears now. See if an image will strike the heart. That which is in the eye will cause them to see. Most of the exiles, they were spiritually deaf. Now this is the height of all of it. On top of the fact that they were carried away into exile, that should be a clue that danger could be coming down the road. They were carried away into exile. And but yet in the exile community, in Babylon, there was false teachers that told all of them, you're going home soon. You're going to get a better house than you had before you left. There's going to be two new cars waiting in your driveway. You're going to have a home that's twice as big. You'll have a swimming pool. I didn't, they didn't say all that, but you know what I mean. You're going back home. Don't worry. Babylon, because also it had been prophesied that Babylon would eventually be destroyed by God. They had the false idea that Babylon would be destroyed before they were. You know, we always want to talk ourselves into the thing that makes things best for our flesh. So they would, they would have false prophets say, you know, well, but what, didn't Jeremiah say that Jerusalem was destroyed? Well, if that happens, it'll be a long time in the future. You don't have to worry about that. That won't be in your lifetime. And Babylon's going to get destroyed eventually anyway. So you guys just hang in there and uh, you'll be heading home. But that wasn't the case. They would readily listen to the false prophets that would tell them that the worst of Jerusalem's troubles were actually behind them. The the, the first two raids on the city, that's as bad as it's going to get. It's never going to get any worse than that. There's no coming destruction And the people willingly received that. And by the way, the false prophets were teaching in both places. The false prophets were teaching the same thing in Jerusalem as the false prophets were teaching to the exiles in Babylon. In both cases, there was men that were willing to say, God's not going to destroy this. This is his city. He would never destroy his very own city. Now, The thing about God is if he destroys something, he can actually rebuild it. If someone dies, he can raise them from the dead. So if God wants to bring about what he deems is necessary, it doesn't mean that Jerusalem ceases to be. God will bring Jerusalem back in his time. But they didn't want to hear that there would be no city to return to because Ezekiel is telling something different. Ezekiel's saying, hey, I know I'm not the guy you want at the party, but Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And after saying that a few times, nobody wanted to hear from Ezekiel anymore. So the Lord said, you don't have to talk, just make pictures. I'm going to have you lay on your side. 
I'm going to have you eat certain bread, and they are going to watch you day after day. At 390 days is a long time to do the exact same thing. If I preached you guys the same message for 390 days, get really tired of it. Some of you think I do, I don't know. But he didn't preach verbally. He would represent the same every day, over and over again. There's, there's the rendering of the city. Here's what's going to happen. And people would eventually come and out of curiosity and some would ask questions. And, and, and he would communicate as people would look and see what it is that he's saying. But you can't blame the people. No one wants to hear, oh, the place you live is going to be annihilated. And you're not going to have a home. And all your relatives that live there now won't be there anymore. They'll all be destroyed. Nobody really wants to hear that. Nobody wants that kind of news. However, I tell you what, if we're willing to hear those kind of things from God, He's gracious and compassionate, isn't He? Willing to relent. Willing to forgive. But you have to be willing to hear what it is that God is saying. So the Lord gives Ezekiel not a preaching text, but a series of images to portray. And this, uh, this tablet would have been a difficult thing for him to do. What a sad and difficult task for Ezekiel. Remember, he's of the Levitical priesthood. He's from Jerusalem. This isn't like some you know, city that he can't relate to. It's easy to sometimes give people information about something you have no connection to. It's a lot easier probably for a physician to talk to a complete stranger than for someone to give very difficult news to someone they know well. And he knew the city of Jerusalem well. John Bunyan said, I find it hard work now to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. And you could imagine that Ezekiel, thinking about the city that he loved, the city that he was from, the despair it would have been for him to know that this is not just an image of what could happen, but this is an image of what will happen, is coming. He grew up in the glorious city of Jerusalem. He had a love for Zion. He loved the temple that Solomon built. And the city of David, the walls that David had put up, all that is still intact right now. For those of his relatives or family that were still back in Jerusalem, they could still walk around the city and it looked the way it always did. They couldn't sense any imminent danger. He no doubt had a clear mental picture of the layout of the city. And so when he would draw it, the people were from Jerusalem too. Remember the exiles, they were all carried from Jerusalem. They knew the layout of the city too. So when he drew it, they knew exactly which city. He didn't have to say, uh, that's Jerusalem. If I draw a city and you see the Capitol Rotunda and you see uh, a tall obelisk, you know, you'd say, that's Washington, D.C. And I put the Potomac River in there. I grew up in the D.C. Beltway area. I like maps to begin with. I could easily render... Even if it was chicken scratch, I could render uh, something of Washington, D.C., and most of you know, especially if I put like a, a straight line here, a straight line here, a straight line here up against the Potomac, and they're like, why is it almost a square? Well, I'll tell you the history of that, but we know it's Washington, D.C., and you would be able to tell. 
I lived for years in Miami. I could do the same thing. I could put the intercoastal there, and this is Miami Beach over here, and down here is Coral Gables, and over here is uh, Kendall, and up here is Fort Lauderdale. And those of you that in Richmond, you could do the same thing and put the center of the city, and you could draw a map, even if it was not a work of art, but people would know what it is you're talking about. But then to have to portray the means of an attack that God says will happen... Well, that's a different thing altogether. You remember the feeling, the day of 9-11 when you saw, you know, first the towers were on fire. I was in Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio. I stepped out of a business meeting when, you know, we had a, we took a, just a break. It was just a planned break. And during that break, I had several people come up to me and say, you've got to come out to the lobby and see what's on TV. And then when I did, uh, I'll never forget Almost every step I seem to take, I can remember for that period. I saw the images, and at that point, both towers were on fire. It, all, it had happened while I was doing a, doing a presentation. And then the shock when the first tower collapsed. And you, you heard everyone in the room. At this point, and I was in a, like a, a Marriott hotel, and at this point, every business person that was on business travel was in the lobby, and all and you, the sound was collective. The image told everything. And even people that had never been to New York City felt connected to two buildings. They felt some kind of connection to New York City. Even people that used to like make fun of New Yorkers all of a sudden felt an affinity with New York that they never felt before because it was still part of America. And you felt a connection to your community through a city that was really well known. I remember the first, my first time I visited New York City in 1999. It was, uh, I was working for a Canadian company. They sent me to New York City for training. It was my first time in New York. I got to go several times after that throughout the decade of the 2000s. But the first time I went to New York in 1999, one of the places I went straight to, I had a Saturday free day, one of the places I took the subway to was straight to the Twin Towers. Because I wanted to, I love buildings, and I wanted to stand and look straight up. And I did. And I went there, I had another colleague with me, and I remember going straight to the Twin Towers and looking straight up. I had no idea that they would not be there two years later. That was 1999. And I know that many other people have similar stories, but they had no idea that if God would have told me, uh, these won't be here in two years, where will they be? They'll be blown up. How? An airplane. Actually, two airplanes. But see, God knows everything, doesn't he? And he could have had someone sketch it before it ever took place. And Ezekiel is given, he's given that kind of insight. He says, this is what it's going to look like. The Lord says, build siege mounds, uh, put armies all around the city. It actually, uh, for those of you guys that played army men like I did, that's kind of what Ezekiel did. After he kind of rendered the image, he actually, and that, we, we don't know exactly if it was laid flat because he draws, draws on the tablet, but he literally actually built little siege mounds and puts little things that make it look like armies coming against the city because eventually Babylon would build the dirt all the way up till they could come right in 
to the city, and it was horrific once Babylon got into the city. The temple would be destroyed, I mean raised to the ground. The whole city set on fire. People slaughtered. All of that would be coming. And he's laying out the picture of what it will look like. He says, moreover, in verse 3, take for yourself an iron plate and set as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face against it. This is even before uh, the next verse where he tells him to lie on his left side to start with. But he takes an iron plate, probably, you know, yay big, an iron plate, and he places it between him and the city. Now all the siege mound has already been built around. He puts the iron wall there, and it tells us a couple of different things. I think that it's uh, noteworthy that both Babylon and Israel had iron wills. Israel refused to listen to the warning of God. They had an iron will. There's many people that God has warned again and again and again and again and again, and they say, not now, not now, not now, not now. An iron will. Israel said, we were attacked twice, but it's not happened a third time. It's not going to happen. They had an iron will to the voice of the Lord. But Babylon also had an iron will named Nebuchadnezzar. And he was not going to take no for an answer. If they weren't going to fully submit to his authority, he wasn't okay with just winning the battle. He would destroy. You know, ancient kings, you would say, who would ever... This is a, the Americans have this thought, too. Americans cannot understand that we have enemies around the world that don't think about where their next vacation is, uh, how much TV they're going to watch tonight, um, when they're going to get the next, you know, kind of brand new iPhone version, when they're going to have the next, like, really fun outing, all that kind of stuff. There are people that think about conquest, not consumerism, or partying, or having a good time. And some of the world leaders in past history, if, if they did not receive the type of response they were hoping for, they would destroy one of the world's most beautiful cities and level it to the ground. You would say, who would destroy a city like Jerusalem? I mean, it was, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. I mean, who would level it to the ground? Who would do that? It, it would be Nebuchadnezzar's rage and anger, his iron will versus the iron will of the people. And God says, I'm putting an iron wall between the two, and nothing will change what's going to take place. In other words, it's set in stone. It's cast in iron. This will happen. Iron wills on both sides. There's also the wall of separation there between God and his people. There was never supposed to be a separation between God and his people. Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation between us and him, amen? It was never supposed to be that. Let's look at the timeline here. Likewise, I want you to, verse 4, uh, lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of Israel upon, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of the days you lie on it. They shall bear their iniquity. The number of the years he goes on in verse 5, 
It'll be 390 days, each day representing a year. And then there'll be the 40 days. We'll get to that in a second. But these 390 days represented by 300, uh, or these 390 days that would represent 390 years, <coughs> he didn't lay on his side the whole time. What he would do is he would lay on his left side for a period of time every day for 390 years. And wherever he was laying, probably right out in front of where he lived, where people could always see when you walked by Ezekiel's place, you knew where he was going to be at least from the hours of whenever to winter. Let's say it was like 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But at a set time, he would be laying on his left side with one arm uncovered, laying on his left side, and in front of him is an iron plate. And on the other side of the iron plate is the rendering of Jerusalem with all the siege mounds and stuff. And people had to walk by and say, dude, we get it. After about 40 days... How much longer are you going to do this? 350 more? That's well over a year. And every time they'd walk by him for that period of time, this would be out in front, and they would see day after day after day. Now, uh, the first king of the northern kingdom was a king by the name of Jeroboam, the first king of the, uh, of the divided... When, when the kingdom divided the ten tribes for the north separated, and you had the two to the south, which was Judah and Benjamin. They were led by Rehoboam, but the northern kingdom, led by Jeroboam, he was the first king of the northern kingdom, and he decided to provide for Israel because he did not want the people of Israel, the ten tribes, he did not want them to travel down to the temple to worship, and if they did, they might kind of have a soft place in their heart for Judah. And instead of being loyal to him, he decided to build them two places of worship inside their own boundaries. He set up two golden calves to be worshipped, and he put these in Bethel and Dan in the northern kingdom. And he became known as the man who made Israel sin, Jeroboam, first king of the, of the northern kingdom. And his idolatrous policy was then followed by all the succeeding kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was 390 years from his initial apostasy to the year that Jerusalem would fall and be destroyed. 390 years. Um, and then some, even when the northern kingdom was, was carried away first by Assyria, some people from the northern kingdom were then kind of... they. Uh, went ahead and came down, and part of the northern kingdom people, the left, those that, that, that weren't destroyed and weren't carried away into captivity by Assyria, they were kind of assimilated into the southern kingdom. So there you have a bleed effect of the northern kingdom people into some of the southern kingdom. And there's where you kind of have this overlap, which the Lord may be getting at, uh, with both the laying on the left and then laying on the right. There's also a 390 years that some scholars arrive at from Rehoboam, the southern kingdom, that's uh, Solomon's uh, son, uh, who, as I mentioned, was the first king of Judah. And then you have the 40 years, and there's a lot of different 40 years that we could point to. One of the 40 years that's pretty significant is the 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness. Israel, 
as a nation. Forty years of rebellion, all their carcasses, the Bible says, fell, except for like Joshua and Caleb who you know, said, uh, no, we can go in and we can take the land. But most of the people were rebellious until that generation had uh, died off. And there was also uh, a 40 years that we can count from the ministry of Jeremiah, when the book of the law was found under King Josiah, you have another 40 years there that takes you from the ministry of Jeremiah up to the destruction of Babylon, which also makes sense considering Jeremiah prophesied to Judah, and he was the first one to tell them what? Destruction's coming. Jeremiah was the one saying that first. The full meaning of these times and the timeline itself, nobody knows. You know, God does a lot of things in the Bible that he doesn't tell us exactly. Guess when you'll finally know what it all means? Sometimes not until we get to heaven. But we can surmise that there are some 390 years that perfectly fit, and there's some 40 years that perfectly fit. Uh, Either way, the message was clear. If you see a prophet laying on his side for 390 years on one side, and then he flips over to the other side, and every single day he has the same iron plate in front of him, and every single day there is the image of Jerusalem and the siege mound, that will get people's attention. It will, have, uh, it will cause some questions to be asked. And he would have an opportunity to explain. And, and hopefully, some people softened a little bit. Somebody around the 175th day says, Ezekiel, does that mean my family's going to die? I'm afraid so. What can I do? You can give yourself to God and start to pray on their behalf. You know? See, that's what a prophet does. There might be bad news. You might have to tell you know, your unsaved co-worker at work, so does this mean that if I die, I'd spend eternity in hell? Yeah, you would. How do you know that? This book. It's the same for me as it is for you. You know, we don't give anyone a different message. The rules are not different for us. The rules are the same for everybody, right? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. And every day, you and I, we don't lay on our left side, and we don't lay on our right side at work. I think people would think you're kind of weird if you go do that tomorrow. But you do present yourself physically as a servant of Jesus Christ, everywhere you go. And you should be a pictorial epistle every day, wherever you go, right? People should be able to see the story of Christ in us. We're not presenting doom, although uh, I've had many discussions with, with people where I've said, look, America's not immune. If we don't repent, Judgment will fall on us just like it has. Why would we think that we... Well, that happens to Greece, it happens to Rome, it happens to the Mongolian Empire, it happens to the Ming Dynasty, it happens to Egypt, it happens to Israel, but it won't happen to us. Now, that would be foolish. The same things are possible. But we have a message of hope, and Ezekiel would be able to... For the one that's humble, for the one that's soft, he could say, I'll be with you, I'll stand with you. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for your family back in Jerusalem. I'll be there at your side. Daniel, 
We don't know if Daniel and Ezekiel ever even saw each other once they got to Babylon, but Daniel would be the guy that put an arm around you and say, yeah, I've seen some, you want to see some of the dreams I've seen? It ain't pretty. But I'm not going to leave the side of the Lord. Let's look at the final as we last few minutes together. What he has to eat. Well, he tells him, uh, make for yourself in verse 9, uh, these little barley cakes, they're made of barley, wheat, beans, lentils, millet, spelt. Um, it's basically you combine these ingredients together, you grind them into flour. Uh, you can grind the lentils, grind all of the ingredients, all of them until it's a fine flour. Anyone ever eaten Ezekiel bread? They sell it in the frozen, frozen section. It's actually good stuff. Um, and they actually, the whole concept is to take the same ingredients and, uh, and you you kind of have these, what is it, sprout, yeah, sprouted grains. They're all sprouted grains and mash them up into flour and uh, it tastes good. It costs more than I wish it did, but uh, good bread. And it's the same, it's the principle here. And then you have these little, uh, little um, he would make these little cakes of bread. Well, the Lord uh, tells him that he needs to cook it on human waste. That'll get anyone's attention. Ezekiel's like, uh, a lot, this, your Bible, I don't know what your mind says, ah, Lord God. <laughs> There's a lot more urgency than the text shows. Because God never gives exaggerations, and everything he asks Ezekiel to do, Ezekiel has already done everything else to the letter. So all of a sudden, he, he built the siege mount, he's been laying on his side, he's doing all this stuff, and God says, now I want you to bake these cakes and cook them on human waste. Well, he knows you can't, you can't do something different than what God's asked, but he just cries out for a little bit of grace and mercy. Is there any other option? <laughs> he doesn't lay it on it, but it's a, he's supposed to light it on fire and cook it on top, and I don't care if the fire is supposedly enough to burn away everything. The, the mind still knows what it was cooked on. And you can't seem to get past that. And I wouldn't either. And I don't think you would either. And he, and he starts telling God, uh, I've never defiled myself. From my, he starts like, re, going through his whole life. And the Lord says, I, I, yeah, I was there. I remember. You didn't do any of that stuff. God gives him a little grace. Verse 15, he says, I'm giving you cow dung instead. Ooh, you're never so happy to see cow dung in your life. It's like all of a sudden, when you go from that to cow dung seems reasonable at that moment. You can't get enough of cow dung at that moment. Well, in Israel, it, was, it wasn't their preferred thing, but it was allowable under the law. When times were tough, they would take straw, and cow dung, and they would mix straw and cow dung together. This is still done in third world countries today. They'll take straw and cow dung, and you mix it all together, and you can cook, and it actually cooks pretty well. I mean, it's like a good Bunsen burner, and you can cook on it. And at least we know that cows mostly just eat grass, so it's, uh, you know, you're basically cooking the straw as grass, the, uh, so it was allowable under the law, and Ezekiel, being a priest, remember he's from the Levitical priesthood, uh, he doesn't feel defiled, and worse than that, he just doesn't have to cook on what the first option was. 
Each day he would eat about eight ounces of bread. That was, that was the food for the day, folks. Eight ounces of bread. No tasty cakes, no cans of Coke, you know, no milkshakes, no Chick-fil-A sandwich. If, you're, if you weren't hungry, now you might be, but none of that kind of stuff. Eight ounces of bread and two-thirds quart of water, and he had to ration it for himself throughout the day. Boy, being called to be a prophet ain't easy, is it? He had to lay on his side. He had to cook on cow dung. He had to make his own barley cakes. He had to eat about eight ounces of bread a day. That was his food. And two-thirds quart of water. And it was to let the people know that Jerusalem, the first aspect of the siege would be what? Food supply would shrink drastically. Food supply. I said before, our nation's never had a nationwide drought from coast to coast, city to city, from Florida to Washington, from Maine to Arizona. We've never had one because God's been awful gracious to us. Amen? If we ever did, most Americans don't know what it's like to not eat three big meals a day. But Israel lived pretty well too. Jerusalem was a world-class city. The people were used to having the finest cuts of meat. They were used to having the best of the best. And God says, this will not be the case. When the siege begins, people will eat anything. A cricket's going to look edible. We're gonna, when we get to chapter 5, it gets really, really, really heinous what will take place. But he's already reminding them the first thing that's going to happen is rationing will begin. Just like in World War II, cities would have to ration. The rations will begin. It'll spawn thirst. It'll spawn hunger. But it's not just going to be thirst and hunger. It's going to cause, look at verse 16, anxiety. They'll be dismayed. There'll be great dread. Their hearts will begin to fail them because they know that the food, even the little bit that they have, is beginning to dry up. And this is the message, this painful portrayal that Ezekiel had to give. And again, I can't overstate how hard this would be. You know, he's from Jerusalem, folks. This is his city. These are his people. If God told you what was going to take place in Richmond and you knew it was really bad, it would burden you to a great deal. But I tell you what, the Lord has told us what's going to take place to everyone around us, and we should be burdened by it. Amen? It should compel us to say, hey, God's not asking you to go do anything great. He's just saying, invite them to church. Invite them to lunch. Say, can I take you, you, know, can I, can I take you to church? Can I invite you to an Easter service? Can can I hand you a gospel track? Can I give you this? We should have a burden for because we know what's coming. Amen? And we want to be faithful servants in proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord and the hope of our Savior. Let's pray.